Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast. With me today is Jonathan Bratton, currently serving as an officer in the Army National Guard in the Pine Tree State, which is the state of Maine. Jonathan is joining us today to discuss his book, To the Last Man, a National Guard Regiment in the Great War, 1917 through 1919. You may have heard Jonathan speaking about this very same book on the Western Front Associations uh, mentioned in Dispatch's podcast, but we're making this different by focusing on the discussed unit's time in the Meurs-Argonne campaign of the U.S. Army. Mentioned in Dispatch's is an excellent podcast, by the way, and you, everybody should uh, check it out. So the regiment in question is the U.S. 103rd Infantry Regiment and it belonged to the 26th Yankee Division. We'll be talking about the 103rd and the 26th performance in the last weeks of World War I today, and I'm super excited to get into it. A quick search of Jonathan on the web, and that might come off as kind of creepy, but I promise you it was not, um, turned up mainly this for uh, a short bio. Um, on his Twitter page, we have, quote, usually wandering off to look at old stuff, Tweets do not reflect opinion of DOD. So that last bit is excellent as it's a great way to get that disclaimer out. Nothing in this podcast episode reflects the opinions of the U.S. Department of Defense nor of any uh, other U.S. military agency. The shortness of the bio is excellent too because it allows me to ask Jonathan to tell us more about himself. So, um, so here we go. Jonathan, Thank you so very much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Um, please tell us a bit uh, more about yourself. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me on. I'm, first off, I'm really excited to be here. Anytime I get to talk about, anytime I, like someone asks me to talk about World War One, that's very exciting. Um, it means that I don't have to like you know force that upon <laughs> them against their will. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, this is great. Uh, a little bit about me. Oh gosh, um, I don't know. Uh, I'm. I don't think of myself as sort of a World War One historian. Um, that's that's I guess I am now. So which which is strange. Um, I I grew up uh, I grew up in Ohio, just utterly fascinated by the Civil War um, okay. of all of all conflicts. Um, moved up to Maine about. 15, 16 years ago, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, was part of the Maine National Guard and. Um, yeah, and I've been I've been very lucky to um, have a great job as a as an army historian. Um, it's sort of one of the best kept secrets out there is that the army does employ actually every federal agency employs historians, lots of historians. Um, so it's uh, it's really cool to be able to do all of this inside that system, and it's led me to all sorts of amazing places and given me great opportunities and. Um, you know, a lot of those opportunities sort of put together caused me to be like, hmm, I should probably write something about that. <laughs> right, right. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Um, so I, I was I was telling uh, the the misses earlier that that I might ask you this question, but since you're you're, you're now working as um, a historian in in the in the military and um, mm -hmm. the National Guard, um, I assume you have um, a, a branch. Of, of the, the army that you've been assigned to. And I, so mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, um, what, what branch are you a part of? And, and if it's not armor, uh, why is it not armor? 
Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I am uh, I am an engineer officer, and I'm not an armor officer because New England National Guard divested its last armor in oh, was that 2006, I think, when Vermont got rid of its armor. Maine got rid of its armor in 1967, so I missed that by about 50 years or so. <laughs> if we had armor, there's a very, very good chance that I would be an armor officer, but... Um, no, I'm an engineer officer, which is great because I get to work with, you know, engineers being generalists, we work with everybody. Of course. Um, so I've uh, gotten to work with lots of different different units, heavy and light. I actually started out um, as an enlisted infantryman in Ohio, and uh, we were in a mech unit. So, okay, uh, wow. you know, right. rolled around and that was, uh, yeah, enlisted in that. So rolling around in Bradley's and looking at the tankers and being like, wow, those are so cool. <laughs> They they were they they were super cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, They're okay, I guess. <laughs> the first time I heard an Abrams start, I was like, "Who just fired up a jet engine? Like, where is that? Oh, there it is." Yeah, I, um, this is probably a good point where I should tell you, like, in the motor pool, like that's where you could find me. Would be like around the back, like standing yeah. in the exhaust, uh, yeah. staying warm, generally. Inhaling it. <laughs> um, well, awesome. Absolutely. I mean, of course, like the, the military gives you wide, wide range of experiences and you're allowed to, to given this, these opportunities to work with everybody. It's, it's very, very cool. Um, so to get back to uh, the Great War, what sparked your interest in, in the Great War? I think you already alluded a bit, like you're from Ohio, you're mainly interested in the Civil War. Um, so what got you really focused into the Great War, and then specifically on the 103rd uh, Infantry Regiment. Yeah, so I mean, the it kind of all started. I always like to say, like, I never, I never set out to write a book on World War One. Like, mm -hmm. I actually, my my plan was to write, you know, something on the on Mainers and the Civil War. Um, you know, preferably the ones who are not on Little Round Top, because <laughs> there were, you know, there were a bunch of others who did really cool things. Um, right. Right. But it turns out, you know, there's a lot of people already doing that writing and they write really well and they're good historians. So that's good stuff. Um, but it was actually more. I I knew nothing. I knew pretty much next to nothing about the U.S. participation in World War One when I when I started my job um, back in 2014 as the command historian for the Maine National Guard. And I was just sort of like poking around and looking at files and um I was like, man, there's a lot of stuff here on like this our infantry regiment's participation in in the in the World War, and that had personal ties to me because um, the the engineer battalion that I'm a part of, the 133rd Engineer Battalion, they're directly descended from the 103rd Infantry Regiment. Okay. So, you know, we'd have you'd have ceremonies or something. You look at the streamers, you'd be like, oh, what's what's this Enmarn thing? What's the moves are gone? And of course, you know, at the time, I'm like, I don't know how to pronounce any of this because my French is terrible. I'm like. The the a azen azenmarn right you know like all this stuff and people and then also it was really embarrassing when people would be like hey why do we have these streamers on these our colors like what are these for I'm like I don't for war stuff I guess we did some war stuff <laughs> so I started just like digging a little bit and um, like I knew I knew the unit had been involved in World War One I. I knew it had seen some combat and then I was like whoa these guys not only saw some combat, like they saw a lot of combat. In fact, like they were some of the very, very first U S combat troops who were over there. Um, and 
and participating in an active front. Um, and so it's sort of just, um, I guess what's where like the, the bug sort of bit me and it was like, it was very like, uh, subtle, like, and it, it just sort of began to grow as like, I grew as I got more used to my job and as I started developing relationships around the state and then you start to meet people and they say, Oh, Hey, I've got my great grandfather's such and such, or here's my grandfather's diary, or we just found this thing. Would you like to read it? It's from, you know, all this stuff from world war one. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is like, it's beginning to add up. Like, I think there's something here, you know? And it was just like, they were fascinating stories really really cool stories i'm like okay i want to know more i want to know more and so like you know you start getting addicted um it's it is it is like an addiction um i would say it's a cheap addiction but we all know it's not because it brings you over to france and you end up buying all sorts of things and helmets and bayonets and bidding on things on ebay at two in the morning (laughs) and other great life choices like that yeah um so to sort of get back to your question, it's it was symbiotic. Um, I guess the interest was sparked by the 103rd. Um, and then I started to get really interested in World War One. As I I'd, I don't want to say I dismissed it. I was just like, oh, we were only in it for like 18 months, and it was all really stupid anyway. You know, lions led by donkeys. There was no point, you know, all those things. And then I started digging, I'm like, oh, no, this is like super nuanced and subtle and really interesting. And there's a whole bunch of really great lessons learned in here. And gosh, we should really study this more. Maybe we would make better decisions. Um, so, so yeah, it, uh, it, sort of, it sort of came about um, that, uh, that the interests collided together. And I sort of haven't looked back since. Um, just touching back on, on the uh, lessons learned. I frequently find myself reading about the AEF and then I find myself thinking like um, of, of my own time in the service. And it's like, we, we would never allow that. We would never not like, we never, we never went out and didn't know the mission. We didn't, mm. didn't know the objective. We never attacked like without maps. We never attacked without an objective. And, um, and I've, I have those thoughts and then I'm like, well, yeah, because these guys had to learn the lessons the hard way. And these are the lessons that we started to take from, from the AEF of like, yeah, everybody needs to, everyone from Lieutenant Colonel to private needs to know what the mission is so that right. they can carry it on out, you know, no matter who's left. So, and that's, and that's why that this era is like, it is, um, I, I remember back during the centennial, the head of the, the director of the army center military history said, you know, he's like, why is world war one important? It is the birth of the modern army. Um, and it is because what's crazy is you can, you know, you take, you look at like 20 years prior to 1917, look at where the national guard and the army were. They looked like the army of 1865. Right. I mean, like they were literally using crap from 18, like, there was a, I was reading a report on like, a, uh, it was like a army engineer report for the Spanish American war that was just like, you know, I was looking at all these engineer assets, all the pontoon bridges we had were from the civil war. Wow. So like, it is no, it is no, you, you could, you could take a soldier from now and throw them into a U.S. Army formation in like 1914 or so, and they'd be kind of like, 
what's going on here? Like, I'm not really sure about this. The Roman one in 1918, they'd be like, oh, I get it. Yep. Okay. Like, I understand. Like, here's a platoon. Here's squads. Um, like, I, I get combined arms. Yeah, that guy's got a, you know, automatic rifle. Those guys have grenade launchers. Oh, you guys, like, doing some combined arms, like, fire team sort of thing? Like, you know. And so, I just, like, that's the, it's like this crazy thing that happens where in 1917, the army jumps from, like, 1865 into the modern era in a matter of a few months. Right. And that's wild. That is, what like, I'm, I keep trying to, like, think about what that would look like today, whether it's, like, Hey, remember like all those units and doctrine and equipment and weapons and tactics and literally everything that we did for the past like 50 years gone. Here's a whole bunch of new stuff. Learn it. Bye. Have a nice trip to France. <laughs> right. Right. Or right. I, I guess the, the only, the only thing I could think of would be like, if suddenly, um, I don't know, we, we suddenly find ourselves uh, fighting in space you know, using uh-huh. all your equipment and, and stuff like that. I, I, I can't even, I can't even think about like what kind of rapid change uh, we would have to see to, to understand. Um, so getting, getting into the 103rd specifically, uh, what is the story of the regiment's formation and its attachment to the 26th division uh, back in, in 1917? You said that, that now it's, it's the 133rd engineer battalion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, the 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 force structure piece is a is a thing that we do a lot of as as National Guard historians as we trace units um, lineages. And um, no, so the second uh, the the one hundred third infantry prior to nineteen seventeen existed as the second main infantry regiment. So it was um, it was Maine's only um, infantry regiment in nineteen seventeen, and it goes back to um, really the formation of the units back in the eighteen fifties. Um, a bunch of the bunch of the companies were um, some of the original militia companies that formed part of the second main infantry in the Civil War. Um, so if anyone's who's watched uh, the movie Gettysburg, they were the guys who were mutiny, you know, mutineers. Basically, um, they were they were the, like the ones who were like, no, we're. <laughs> yeah, I know you, you said, well, we signed up for three years, but. <laughs> the thing is. <laughs> Our recruiters lied to us. Uh, so, yeah, it goes back to that um, long history in the state. Um, but what happened, you know, we talk about things that have to change for a modern war. So um, the the second Maine gets recruited up to wartime strength in the spring of 1917. Um, and that's about 2000 troops. Now, the Army's uh, table of organization for infantry regiments goes from, yeah, like 2,000 troops to 3,800, um, which is insane, um, that, the, you know, the span of control that you think about for that. And so um, as they start putting together these, these new divisions, New England becomes the formation spot for the 26th Division, otherwise known as the Yankee Division. And so they just start, like, cutting units up and mashing up units and like taking bits. It's like, it's like Frankenstein's monster. Like, Oh, I'll take a little bit of this. Like, Hey, I'm going to take like 400 dudes from the first Vermont, throw them in here. And we'll take, so like they take all the enlisted men of the first New Hampshire, throw Mm -hmm. them in some elements of the sixth and eighth Massachusetts, throw them in. And like, Oh, congratulations. Now you're all one unit and you're the 103rd U S infantry regiment. And everyone's like, wait a minute, what just happened? Like, you've literally changed the entire organization and structure. And that was going on across the entire U.S. at the time, of course, for all the 
for all the National Guard units. It was a, a you know, kind of a traumatic time where you have units that had really long, proud state identities suddenly being like, hey, here's your new identity. Get along. Go to war. <laughs> have fun. And is this um, <clears throat> slightly off topic, but is, is mm-hmm. this the end of, of units, you know, being named with like state designations? Yeah. yeah, it goes on like I think the last one. There's some units that hang on into the 20s. Okay. Um, so like, for example, when they, you know, they mobilize, they federalize the second Maine in 1917, the Maine National Guard's like, well, we kind of have no troops here because the, the rest of the National Guard in Maine was coast artillery. And of course, they were mobilized as well. Right. Um, and they're like, oh, we kind of have no National Guard here in case something happens. So they raised it. They were given authorization by the War Department to raise the third Maine Infantry. And they're the only existing organization in the National Guard, like through 1919, 1920, 1921, until the Guard begins to reconstitute. And they stay the third main, and I want to say until 1921. And it's, it's, it's super bizarre because, yeah, it's very rare that you actually get a unit that keeps a state designation. But by and large, 1917 is when all the state designations go away. Everything becomes federal, federal um, nomenclature. Oh, Okay. All right. So who was the commander of the 103rd? And, and can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah. Oh, man, he was a funny guy. Um, Colonel Frank Hume, um, who was from Bridgewater, Maine, which is way up there. It is like, you know, you drive past Bangor and just keep going. And then you basically get to the border with Canada and bang a left. Like, oh, wow. OK. And yeah. then and then keep driving. Wow. That's deep. So, so he's 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 a northern Mainer. Um, really interesting dude. He had aspirations to go to West Point, um, but scarlet fever left him with horrible eyesight. Mm. So he ended up going to um, it was like this military prep school in Poughkeepsie or near Poughkeepsie, New York, um, and then uh, and then came back to Maine and, and finished his degree there. But he always just had this like lifelong dream of being a soldier. Like apparently as a kid, he would form his friends into like, you know, a little military company and march them around. Um, so which is basically what he does as an adult. Um he uh he becomes a postmaster of Holton, Maine, and which is also northern Maine. And he organizes a company, like, you know, 40, 45 dudes, and basically at the time, what you did is, you know, if you wanted to um, be part of the National, if you wanted a new unit in the National Guard, you would essentially organize a company and present it to the state and be like, hey, look, we have a company. Um, I would love to know what that looks like, by the way. Like, I would love to know, like, did anyone ask for this? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, seriously. But uh, yeah, he organized the Holton Company. They presented it to the state. It was accepted and became Company L of the 2nd Maine. Um and um, so he was, and because he had organized the company, he was a company commander. It, it, like, again, when we're talking about like, this is stuff that you would think of from the Civil War. This is happening in the 1890s. Like this, it hasn't changed at all. So through this whole era, you're watching like everything changes um, inside the guard. So he rises up through the ranks. He, um, he goes to Cuba um, as a as a company commander in a unit from Maine. Um, they miss they miss all the fighting. They're there for occupation duty, but still, you know, when are you going to go from Maine, like northern Maine, to Cuba? Like, you know what I mean? That's kind of a big deal. And probably a bunch of those guys are like, "Well, this is the most interesting thing I'll ever do." Um, right. Came back. Uh, he rises up through the ranks. I believe he was a battalion commander 
by 1904, um, which is when they went to um, Manassas, Virginia for uh, maneuvers. The The army was trying out this new thing of, um, hey, what if we take all of our like regulars in National Guard and actually put them through live training scenarios, you know, kind of like a NTC or JRTC. These are all precursors to that. Um, so they came down and trained in, in Manassas. So he, he was building up, building up more and more experience. Um, and then by 1916, he's a colonel of the regiment and he takes him to the, to the border during the, the 1916 call up of the national guard that saw, you know, what was it like 240,000? Yeah. No, 140,000, 140,000 guard troops all mobilized um, down on the border for for about six months or so. So um, he's gaining all of this military experience, but he's still, dude's still a postmaster. <laughs> like he, and he looks like a postmaster. Like when you look at him, you're like, oh, he should be a postmaster because he is. He doesn't look like a combat leader. His big main, his main traits were. Um, profanity um he had a sign above his office desk that said um uh please no please no swearing uh it's not it's not that we give a damn but it sounds like hell to the customers <laughs> uh and then also he never forgot a soldier's name um he there were like accounts of him running into people in maine like in the 19 19- 30s and 40s who he'd served with in Cuba like in 1898-99 and he remembered their names. So that type of thing obviously endears soldiers to someone. And he was by and large it seemed like he was a very competent administrative leader and his men really really liked him. Um and and he and he cared for them. He really looked out for their welfare. Awesome. So you got Colonel Hume, the 103rd, they're they're merged as part of uh they're formed as part of the 26th division with the 101st 102nd 104th infantry um also the 101st field artillery and 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 other units um i can't remember all all of them in there now um so the 26th division um i think i know this story um so when did the 26th deploy for overseas duty because i i understand like their commander was also a, a bit of a character very um, much so and their and the conditions under which they deployed again is, is one of those things like like that just simply wouldn't be allowed right <laughs> yeah so the 26th division gets formed formally in august of 1917 and so all these units uh, i guess you mentioned them we've got the four infantry regiments you've got three field artillery regiments you've got an engineer regiment Sanitary train, ammunition train, three field ambulance companies, three field hospitals. Well, three machine gun battalions. There's a lot. There's a lot. Um, these are these are enormous organizations. This is twenty eight thousand people in a division. Right. Um, for for reference, of course, you know the British, French, and German divisions are around fourteen to fifteen thousand. Um, so these are just monsters, and nobody has ever had any experience doing anything with anything this large like it's just it's crazy um so the 26th division division commander is major general clarence edwards who's a really interesting dude he's a west pointer um originally from ohio uh go buckeyes and um he he follows sort of a you know he's he he's contemporaries with all the like with pershing and liggett and like all these guys who are going to form the AAF. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but he's also very good friends with um, President Taft. And okay. they're, and so because of that, he gets some interesting assignments. Like uh, he commands the, I think his, his, his last command before he took command of the 26th Division was commanding the Panama Canal Zone. Um, so he didn't have a lot of like operational field experience like Pershing did or others like that. He tended to have what some might call sort of like perk assignments or cushy assignments. Um, but that doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean that he didn't know what he was doing. One thing that he hadn't done was, um, get to Cuba in time to participate in fighting for during the Spanish American war in 1898. So he kind of had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. Let me rephrase that. He had a massive chip on his shoulder. Uh, (laughs) He had a huge authority problem. Um, but like, you know, like Hume, his men loved him. He was super personable. He looked out for their best interest. Um, he was just a very, the right, you know, like when you have that leader who you're like, yeah, all right, they're unorthodox, but like, damn, I, like, I trust them and right. you know, I would, they're going to go to bat for me and they're looking out for me. Right. Um, so with all of this, uh, the division concentrates for the first time. Um, at a couple different training camps in Massachusetts in August, September of 1917. And I say concentrates, I mean, they're not even together completely as an entire division, really, until France. Um, The plan was that they were supposed to go to Camp Green, North Carolina, to do their training, to, to concentrate as a division and to train on all this new stuff that we were talking about, like all this new technology and equipment and tactics. That wasn't really in General Edwards' um, schedule that day, I guess. Um, So he got this idea that he wanted to get his division over to France first. Now, the War Department had thought about this, obviously. Um, They thought about, like, you know, in all our past wars, the states are always fighting against each other. Like Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and New York are like always duking it out over like who's better and like who got where first. So they tried to get around that by creating the 42nd division, which was a national guard division um, called the rainbow division, you know, brought in units from all across the nation um, to be like, okay, this is actually going to be the first national guard unit to go to France so that we don't have to deal with such and such, you know, Pennsylvania, say, you know, going and setting up a giant monument to itself like it likes to do anywhere Pennsylvania goes. So that was the plan. Um, and then Clarence Edwards got involved and he was like, I don't want to go to Camp Green, North Carolina. I want to go to France. So he sent his aides to all the ports of embarkation on the northeastern coast. When I say all, I mean, like even to Halifax. Like from Halifax all the way down to Hoboken, and is like, "Hey, you guys got any ships? Like, I've got some troops. Your ships, my troops. They should meet." <laughs> um, but literally, I mean, he sends his guys down there, like with manifests, and they're like, "So we're ready to go." And the guys and like the the uh, harbor. Um, wow, I'm blanking. I don't want to say harbor master, but like the the guys um, overseeing the the loading of the ships. Like, no, 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 these transports are reserved for the 42nd Division. And they're like, well, is the 42nd Division here? (laughs) No, they weren't. It's like, all right, I guess, why not? Like, I I don't, I can't even imagine the drug deals that were going on to make this thing happen. Right. Um, And so all of a sudden in September, 
all the camps just like vanish in Massachusetts and everyone's on trains headed to Hoboken and New York and um, Halifax. I think what battalion or two goes through Halifax, like all these, all these major seaports wow. they load up, um, they <laughs> rendezvous in Halifax, uh, pick up their destroyer escorts and leave for France. And like, as they're leaving, Edward sends a wire back to a telegraph back to the war department. It's basically like, Hey, so uh 26 divisions on its way to France, which if you know anything about Pershing, um, you know, he's noted for his calm and kind and patient demeanor. I can only imagine like the sound of the explosion uh, that his brain made when he, when he got that message. So it did, that did a few things. It, um, one, you have a, uh, the first full division in France becomes a National Guard division, um, which the National Guard is always going to, like, you know, brag about. Right. Um, and, of course, it's a New England division, so everyone in New England is going to brag about that. It also means right. that um, Edwards has pissed off his boss pretty badly. Um, they already didn't have great relationships from the academy. Uh, honestly, all the squabbling inside the AAF of senior officers, I'm pretty sure... <laughs> Most of it can just be put down to like, they didn't like each other when they were cadets. Wow. Like so I, I, I know, I know Pershing was just, um, the terror at, at West Point. He was the president of his, of his class for all yep. four years, but, um, oh my goodness. Like he was definitely like a, a fan of hazing as, oh a, yeah. Wow, yeah, yeah. And, and like, wow, man. And like, like, so when you look at, and this is a total tangent, but when you start to like, one of my favorite things to look at is like um, the the officer corps inside the AAF, and there's been a whole, there's a whole bunch that's done about this, and I think we're gonna we'll probably talk about it a little bit later because it comes up in the Moose are gone, but you know relief of officers, and a lot of it seems to be surrounding, oh, it's a National Guard thing. I'm like, but this doesn't make sense because like nearly every single Guard division is commanded by West Pointers, and in fact, most brigade commanders are West Pointers. And in fact, a bunch of battalion commanders and regimental commanders were West Pointers. And so I'm like, okay, this doesn't really track. And so I start like looking around at like the, the political machinations of officers in the right. AF. And I'm like, oh my God, these are just regulars who are jockeying for like greater position in the army after the war. They're looking at their careers or they just didn't like each other when they were cadets and they're taking it out at each other. I'm like, this is insane. Like this is like kindergarten. You're in a you're in a freaking war, um, you know, in World War One. So anyway, um, the, the but the big thing that it does is it means the 26th Division gets over there in October of 1917 and has not completed any training. And so, as some of the first troops in France, there's no like ready-made barracks for them. There's no there's no training areas so they have to build their barracks right wow. they build all their cantonment areas they have to find like you know supplies basically they're just sort of foraging for the first few weeks <laughs> um they have to wait on their equipment to arrive um beg borrow and or steal it uh and then they have to build their own training area like they literally go out and they build an entire trench section in um, in the fall, winter of, of 1718 um, that they then train in. So it puts the 26th Division in a pretty awkward spot because not only did they are they now sort of behind the power curve when it comes to training for this new type of war, they've also ticked off their boss and um, 
it's really hard to train for war when you've got like half of your forts building barracks and and packing up supplies like you know the the supply the supply and support infrastructure had not yet arrived to france so they're just like going in blind like you know leroy jenkinsing it <laughs> nice reference that's awesome how did um how does edward survive this like obviously like some strong political connections that yeah. not pershing could break well i mean he doesn't uh, you know as we'll talk about it he he it's a near run thing i mean he survives because yeah he was he was friends with with taft um he has a lot uh, the new england governors and senators very powerful um so pershing's like i don't really want to pick a fight with i don't need that battle right now even right. though he wanted to, he wanted to fire him right off. There were actually a bunch of the other AAF officers who were like, we can point to things that you've done in your career that are just as stupid. So like, maybe give this guy a chance. Like his men really, really love him. Um, so don't break a, a division before it even gets into combat. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. That's, that's, it's not interesting. That's, that, that's actually fascinating. Wow. So, 26th division with the 103rd there as well. Of course, like they're now in France. So before they get to the, the Meuse-Argonne offensive in October of 1918, they're there in, in 1917. So the 103rd and, uh, and its parent division, they see active duty on the Chemin des Dames sector, the, the tool sector uh, near Saint-Miel, where you have uh, villages like um, Apremont, uh, Seychepray, Chivray, where, where several raids, uh, the, we covered Seychepray in, in the podcast about four or five years ago. Oh, nice. uh, but we've got the, the 103rd also, uh, sees service on, during the second battle of the Marne in July of 1918. And then of course the clearing of the San Miguel salient, uh, the following September. So what did the 103rd learn, um, in the field and in, in those engagements, like how, how much did general Pershing's open warfare concept square with the reality of combat uh, on mm. the Western front in 1918? Yeah. Ooh, that's a great question. Um, so yeah, they're busy. Um, they get, you know, from, they go into line in February of February 6th. Um, they, the first units begin occupying a frontline sector in the Shamanda Dam. Um, and they're, only break uh for the whole division because you know they rotate units out in and out of your frontline sectors but the only break that the whole division gets is about two and a half weeks in august that's the only break in like and until the armistice um other than that they are fully employed as frontline troops so um all of their experience until July 18th um, is, is in the defense, is fighting defensively. So, you know, that's, that's its own specific type of warfare. Um, mm -hmm. You know, surviving um, trench warfare uh, is, is, is not a passive thing. So they learn that they, you have to have active patrolling all the time. You always have to be sending out patrols, getting intelligence from the enemy, trying to set them, keep them off balance, um, rotating your units in and out of frontline sectors, maintaining trenches, um, work parties to uh restore wire um build trenches you know all these all these things there's all this whole rotation of that you get used to um of of holding a defensive sector and they get really really good at it 
Um, you know, uh, you mentioned Zivre, that's, you know, they, they kick some of the best German troops in the teeth, um, pretty blatantly, I mean, as the German AAR says, which is basically like, we've once again underestimated the fighting abilities of the Americans on the Western Front. Um, and uh, so they're pretty, they get, they get pretty good at this. Um, there's a huge difference, though, especially um, in any type of warfare, the transition from defense to offense is one of the most difficult and dangerous transitions to make. Um, of course, you know, the doctrine of the U.S. Army today is we only assume the defense to retake the offense. Um, and and that's we get that kind of from World War One. Um, we're you know holding holding the defense in order to, to, to seize the initiative. So, yeah. So while they had a lot of frontline experience, none of it was in making. Uh, you know, fighting in open warfare, this concept of Pershing's that we are going to, you know, take the fighting out of the trenches. It's, you know, it calls it open warfare. It's maneuver warfare. Um, but maneuver warfare without proper combined arms, as we know it today, you know, armor, infantry, artillery, aviation, all working in, in, in close coordination with enablers like engineers, signal, um, I suppose there's a few other lesser branches out there. Now. <laughs> you know, and all backed up by logistics. Um, in, unless, unless you're fighting that way, as soon as you leave the trenches, you're just targets. And this is something that every single AEF division has to discover on its own in 1918. Um, and so the 26th is no different. Um, the, the first offensive, so July 18th begins the, the second Marne, and the 26th Division is holding an area around Bella Wood, um, they took over, which they took over from the 2nd Division around July 4th to 8th. So they've already been there for like two weeks, um, just soaking up a bunch of artillery and, and uh, high explosive and gas shells. And uh, so it's time to assume the offensive, and they're going into basically just walls of machine guns. Um, there's inadequate artillery preparation because of this idea of, oh, we're going to take them by surprise. Um, the, the, that works sometimes. Um, it worked for the third um, battalion when they took Torcy on the morning of, uh, of July 18th. Um, but when the second battalion tried to take, basically take a, a, a it's basically a, a position between two other units just to keep liaison. I mean, there's no, they weren't actually holding any type of, attacking to hold any specific type of terrain. Um, they discovered what happens when you don't just utterly pound the crap out of your enemy with artillery. Um, artillery liaison on the move was very, very difficult. Um, and so units start taking a lot of casualties because they're doing, you know, open field rushes against machine guns, which as everybody in 1914 and 1915 figured out is a really bad idea. That's why we don't do that anymore. We have this thing called infiltration tactics and also using a lot of artillery, um, which is something that um, the AEF is not used to. Liaison with adjacent units, liaison with artillery, liaison in general just goes to hell as soon as you begin the offensive. Um, phone, line gets, phone lines get cut, everything gets resorted to runners, there's so many distinguished service cross citations for runners because like it was, you know, kind of like a death sentence. Um, right. So they're experiencing all these same things uh, and it's horrible. I mean, the one with third takes the most casualties of any, any unit in the 26th division during the second Marne that week of combat, they just get eight up. It is, a, it is a meat grinder. Um, yeah. Granted they pushed the Germans back nine miles, but um it's messy, it's uncoordinated, 
literally the only reason that they're able to do that is through significant bravery of specific individuals, a lot of Medal of Honor DSC citations. And again, like, you know, when you were handing out a Medal of Honor citation, it's not because everything went great. It's because everything broke down. <laughs> like, it's literally just a, so everything broke down, but you, you know, who may or may not still be alive, you know, did something that materially contributed to, to us having success in spite of everything not working. Right. In um, spite of everything else. Correct. Right. So it was, it was a bloodbath, um, simply put. The which the 26th division recognized immediately. So in his after action review, Edwards and his subordinate officers, when they sent sent back up to GHQ, was, hey, this attacking out in the open thing is a very very bad idea. Like if we're gonna do this, um, there needs to be massive artillery preparation. Um, we need armor or something. Like they're like, give us tanks, give us armored cars, give us literally anything. Um, we need to improve the coordination between infantry and artillery because when you're on the advance, artillery is not going to shoot if they think they're going to hit their own troops. And when you're in that type of mobile combat, it's really, really hard to figure out what your front line of troops is when all you've got is runners and field telephones that keep getting broken because the Germans are hitting you with high explosive and cutting all your wires. Right. Or, you know, your infantry is like, oh, I could use this to tie... I can use this phone line to tie up a thing. So yeah, it's really, really messy. Um, the AEF doesn't still still doesn't understand it. Um, so during the battle, in fact, there was a point where the corps commander orders two brigades of the 26th Division to switch fronts in the middle of an attack, um, which was just chaos. I mean, all the all the regiments of the unit just got all mixed up together. Um, right. I, I I remember reading that, and I'm like. Why? why why would you do that yeah i mean there so the nobody's ever in the u.s army no not nobody ever nobody in command in the af at this time has ever had any type of experience moving troops like this so when you look at a map it's all really easy when you've got like fifteen thousand troops all smushed into one area um, yeah, and just oh, we'll just push that brigade that that brigade stronger. Like have them attack here and have you attack there, and um, and so it causes chaos. And then you've got you know Pershing's representatives coming down and asking Edwards like, "Where's your front line of troops?" And he's like, "I'm gonna be honest, I don't know. We're trying to figure that out. Like they're in combat here, but I can't tell you. Like we've got units mixed up everywhere. They're like, oh, well, you can't you can't command your troops. Like you're a." You're not a uh, an efficient commander. And this all you know, comes up to Pershing, and he's so he's getting more and more ticked off at Edwards. But when you look at the division's performance compared to all the other divisions, you're like, oh, it's the same thing. Like the second division, one could argue, was even worse at Bella Wood. Um, the 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 performance of the Marines, while very, very brave, was utterly just an absolute waste, um, an inc incredible waste. Um, and then the 42nd Division, when they attack, when they replace the 26th Division and attack Kral Rouge Farm, are going to take a thousand, like MacArthur's going to take a thousand casualties in his brigade on the first day. Like, mm -hmm. it's like every single division has to just like go through this bloodletting. Some of them learn, some don't, like the like the second division, because um, they're going to do the same thing again. But um, yeah, it is it is, it is really expensive. It's really expensive learning curve. Um, so what this does for the 26th division, at least, 
there's a, it, it, there's a whole bunch of officers who realize we can't fight this type of war. Like we need, we need to fight like the French are fighting. We need to be using infiltration tactics or there was a great memo from inside the division with this idea of combat gangs. Okay. It's essentially just, it's just a combined arms platoon is all it is. It's super cool because it's showing that there's tactical innovation happening inside, like in the unit level and then rising up to the top. So the, um, what these leaders are, are are understanding is they need to adapt and change the way that they fight because they can't take casualties like this in the future. I mean, it's absolutely, um, it, it's horrific what, what happens to these units at, uh, at second Mart. Wow. And, and, and we still, you know, like that, um, is that battle is typically seen as, as the major turning point in that summer of 19. Mm-hmm. So, Again, like, yeah. like you were saying earlier, and in spite of everything we did, we we still wind up winning the battle um, and pushing the enemy back and, and to being able uh, to take the initiative. Uh, right. And that's sort of the problem, though, is like we look at this and we go, hey, yay, we won. And you're like, if we took losses like that today, the country would shut down. Right. July, July 18th to 20th is still like for Maine, it's the, they're the, like the three bloodiest days in Maine history bar the civil war, maybe really. And probably even more than that. Um, it's, it's awful. I mean, you have whole sets of, uh, of, um, brothers and cousins and friends, like from all these really small towns across new England who are just gone in a matter of three days. Um, 18 to 20 is <clears throat> that's where, at least for the one third, that's where they take most of their casualties. Now, a lot of the, 101st, 102nd, 104th, they get theirs um, the next few days, um, which are are equally bloody and confusing. So, uh, yeah, and so we go, oh, look at all the success, but at what cost? Um, And for the 26th Division, the cost is even greater because, and I don't know the root of this, and I would love to, I I keep looking to find out why, but um, as Mark Grolschuen points out in his his book on... um, the AF way of war, for whatever reason, the 26th division re- received far, far fewer replacements than any other AF division, despite them being one of the, you know, one of the four OGs really right. in the, in the AF, um, despite them having that much combat time, they get major replacements only in August. That's mm. it. They're ne- and they, and they, and they are never at full strength um, during the war because, you know, they can't they they barely even recoup their their battle losses if that so every time they go into action they're significantly under strength and that's just going to get worse and worse as we proceed towards october wow that's interesting like there's obviously there must be a reason like everybody like the 77th division was bled out on on the vel um in august of 1918 and then in in september right before the the Merzagan began they received a huge influx of brand new replacements most of whom probably died within the next three four days right around uh, Falcon, yeah but they got that and so they knew yeah. you know they would have known like hey the 26 is hurting as well so yeah and it's i i don't know i don't know if it's i i can as much as so i have a personal dislike for pershing but i could never I couldn't even with that. I still could not see him go. 
oh, we're not going to give the 26 any more troops. Like that just seems like the most callous. So I still am trying to figure it out. But the the numbers um, remain that they receive significantly less than all the other, you know, the first, second, uh, 32nd, 28th, 42nd. These units have been fighting for a while. They just receive significantly fewer. Um, and and that is so by the time that they are looking at Samuel Mirzargan, you're looking around but by around Samuel, you're around like 75% strength, maybe. Wow. If you're lucky. Wow. And that and that matters, especially take, taking losses of, of the kinds that 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 they were gonna take at at um Mirzargan and, and yeah. had taken in, in second Marn. It's a psychological thing too. Especially for these guard units who, you know, there's that close hometown community connection. And then all of a sudden those people that you, whether you'd joined the guard in, you know, as a young kid, um, and these are like the guys that you've known forever, or even if you joined in 1917, you probably still knew them like in the town or in the community. Um, so all of a sudden those faces are missing and you've got these new guys, you know, like transfers from other units or brand new raw recruits, um, that you're trying to figure out, and there's just never enough of them. They get, uh, like you said, a short break in August, and then San Miguel. Um, they they help clear the the San Miguel salient in on September 12th and 13th of 1918. Um, and then, you know, the the Mirzargan begins, and um, I believe the 26th was was holding the line at at the base of what used to be the the San Miguel salient, and then in October. They get called up to the the Meuse front and they take on on the eastern bank of the Meuse River, the the Meuse Heights. And in the podcast, I'm almost at the point where I can start talking about them. Um, I'm not quite there yet, so hopefully another month or so. <clears throat> but they're coming in pretty pretty late in the game. But now the 26 is coming into the line, and they are pretty experienced AEF division. And for this question here, I'm sorry, I left it kind of vague, but what I meant was at the end of the operation, at the end of, of the Mozargon, um, Captain Shumway, Sherman Shumway, mm-hmm. uh, commander of the second battalion, 103rd infantry said, when asked how he used his movement, his, excuse me, when asked how he moved his unit so quickly, he replied the experience of Chateau Thierry back during the summer. So how did the 103rd apply those expensive lessons learned before the Samuel operation? Yeah, so um, one, uh, it helps that you have a 13-hour artillery bombardment preceding you. That's always good. Um, But what what really happens is you have, instead of you know, wave infantry attacks, um, you have basically squad and platoon level infiltrations. Um, so if you're moving, identify machine gun, automatically everyone just goes to providing as much suppressive fire as possible, utilizing attached, um, if you, uh, they, they had uh, usually I think two, um, the one or third machine gun battalion provided detachments of, uh, of Hotchis, Hotchis uh, guns. Um, and so you utilize, if you've got machine guns, if you've got the 37 millimeter, the, the one powder guns, right. um, they were bringing those things right up to the front, um, and, and using those against machine gun positions. So basically instead of like just advancing until you all die, it's, you hit that, you immediately suppress and then try to flank or destroy it with artillery, you know, trench mortars, 37 millimeter 
fix and flank. It's like what we do today. Um, so that was the thing that was most fascinating for me is realizing these guys automatically were like, okay, no, that was a very bad way. We all knew it was a bad way. We were doing what we were taught. It was a terrible idea. We need to do what makes sense. And it works very, very, very well. I mean, to the point where you've got um, flank units of the attacking, uh, the 103rd was attacking one yeah, on a, a one battalion front, they start sending teams out to help um, the units on their flanks. So you are so you are also seeing liaison actually happening, um, which is super cool because they're learning. No, we have to like work in close coordination with the units on our right and left. That's how we survive. You know, no one wants to go pull a, a lost battalion. You know, granted this is before the lost battalion, but they're still thinking like no flankly flank security is really really important. Um, and they're just gradually work their way through these uh through these trenches incredibly successful i mean they capture 900 prisoners um one battalion uh it, yeah shumway captures captain captain shumway commanding a battalion he's like 24 years old <laughs> he's right? a kid he's just a kid um and they capture an entire german battalion basically um in their assembly area and the german battalion commander like is very doesn't want to surrender because they, the German battalion commander is a count like in the peerage and he has to surrender to this kid from Bangor, Maine. Um, and this is a humorous moment where he's like, you know, I request a car for my, for my, you know, um, effects. And, uh, and then a doughboy like gives him a little poke in the back of the bayonet and he's like, here's your car, start walking. <laughs> I was going to say like, like do you now, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, no, it's just a very, very effective use of all the enablers inside the regiment. Um, the, uh, and, and that was a, that was a huge lesson that they learned from, from second Marn and then taking it slowly, um, using a deliberate approach to fix and flank repeatedly worked very, very well. So yeah, in the process, you know, they captured dozens of machine guns, <clears throat> I think overall actually about 1200 pr uh, prisoners, um, and they and they make their breakthrough. So that's they've learned how to do this now. Um, now they just kind of have to to survive because while they don't take that many casualties, they're still significantly under strength, and they're not going to get any more replacements. Like wow. pretty much at all. <laughs> Man, so they go in. They go into the Merzargon. Um, now we know um, under strength. You know, fairly under strength experienced but you know with with a lot of gaps in in the line um so what was the 103rd's in, um excuse me what was the 103rd infantry's experience in the Meuse heights in late october like what was the state of the german forces opposite them still mm. um providing like like determined defense or steadily falling back still very much providing a determined defense um when you look at the table of organizations for the German divisions that the 26 is encountering, um, the thing that stands out the most is the absurd amount of machine guns. Um, these are just very, very, they're defensive divisions, essentially. Um, they're designed for this. So um, when the 26th division goes into the heights of the Meuse, you know, just, just like four kilometers, four or five kilometers north of um, uh, where the ossuary is today, um, mm -hmm. So for one, that area, obviously, like it's Verdun. It's the Verdun front. So it looks like 
hell actually um and that's how people describe it like you know one guy's like i can't you there i have no words to describe the conditions that we're living in now um there's just detritus of war everywhere bits of humans everywhere uh it is it is horrific it is also you know october november the flu spanish influenza is beginning to hit um and just regular sickness um is hitting because it's raining it's cold uh it's very hard to get um food up to the lines and the germans are using persistent chemical agents pretty much regularly so you're spending a lot of time from the front lines or even the rear areas you're spending a lot of time all masked up that really wears you down um the 26th division conducts its last really major offensive um towards the end of october to take um the uh bella bois uh, and around around the Bois de Haumont. And it's just a couple hills um, filled with, you know, concrete bunkers and all that sort of fun things that the Germans do for defense. Yeah. Um, and they take it, they lose it, they take it, they lose it, uh, I think about three times. Um, so tanks that are supposed to be supporting them um, have a very hard time in that terrain because it's crap. <laughs> it's really, really difficult for tanks to move like tanks. Um And they're really unable to make any significant gains in that offensive. The problem is, one reason they can't make many gains is because, like I said, they're around 70% strength when they go in, maybe if you're lucky. By the time most of the division comes out of that, um, you're looking at like 20 to 30% strength. The 101st Infantry is almost completely shattered um, in, in the 20s, at the end of these three days of fighting in, at the end of October. Um, and, and there are recommendations of like, pull this unit off the line before it breaks. Wow. Um, so the 103rd is actually one of the, in one of the better places, um, one of the better uh, manned regiments in the division because they didn't have it was mainly the the 51st brigade so the 101st and 102nd that were bearing the brunt of this fighting and some of the 104th as well so <clears throat> they're just basically occupying these frontline sectors now just trying to keep steady pressure on the germans um on november 8th uh they see that some of the germans are being the germans in front of them are, are beginning to pull back um, and so patrols go out, identify, yep, they're falling back. Uh, the one, the whole division begins to push forward <clears throat> and they're running into, um, essentially what the regimental commander calls a checkerboard of machine guns. Um, and, uh, it's rotten because each company is around, let's see, I think the last, uh, November 10th, the last companies that are attacking you're around like 20 to 25 guys. Out of an original complement of, of uh, 250. Yeah, mm-hmm. wow. So yeah, you're looking at around like 10%, actually, um, realistically. Um, so, and once again, they're just small unit actions moving forward, moving with squads. There's a whole other wrinkle here, too. Because also around November 8th, Hume, Colonel Hume gets relieved of command. Um. Well, it's not just him. There's multiple leaders inside the 26th Division. Uh, Edwards got relieved on November 3rd. Right. Ostensibly uh, told to go back and, you know, you need to go and build a new division in the U.S. Um, But it was a lot of, it was a buildup of a lot of that distrust um, that, that we'd sort of seen coming. Now, 
Hume's relief was weird because he and a couple other leaders got relieved because of um, charges of fraternization. Basically, right that the regiment wasn't being aggressive enough and that um, they sort of had a, a truce with the Germans to like not shoot at each other. And it's really interesting because you'll, you'll see um, some people take the statements at face value. Um, I started digging into the regiment's records and they've got the depositions of all the officers because there was an inquiry and you've got like literally everybody being like, no, there's like the regimental chaplain as well is like, right. There's no fraternization. There's attempts to get them to surrender. And some of them did. Um, anytime that there was sort of a, a back and forth, it was basically like Germans were like, Hey, you want to not shoot at each other? And like, would you guys like to just, you know, stop shooting for good and come on back and be prisoners? And the Germans, when they didn't want to do that, then, you know, the shooting continued. Um, so for, for all those reasons, you know, Hume gets relieved. Um, and this guy who had been the division judge advocate, uh, takes command. And it's really, really interesting in these crucial last three days of fighting with the 103rd, when you're talking units, you know, battalions down to like 200 guys that started out at 1200, um, involved in this really, really nasty fighting in horrible terrain in horrible weather against very, very well dug in Germans who are mostly machine guns. <laughs> um, and so you've got this, the regimental commander who's just like, no, attack, 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 like keep pressing. All we need is one, it's like, it's like one more good push and they'll break. And I'm like, oh my God, where have I heard that before? <laughs> Every single war, one more good push. And what was really interesting is he was like, you know, keep pressing forward without, he specifically says, without regard to the units on your right and left. Oh, that and like one. reading, I was reading this in the National Archives, like his orders. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait, so you're just... You're just like begging for another lost battalion here, are you? Right. I was going to say that's that's the that's the line that got the lost battalion in char, uh, in trouble. Right. And this is this is like November 9th. I mean, we've only got a few days of this thing left. Um, and what's fascinating is so the battalion commanders are guys who were company grades or even enlisted, like when the war began, and they are very battle hardened. Like they are some of the very best. Like you've got um yeah cabot you've got um doan and you have shumway some really 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 good combat leaders and they're like yeah we're not actually going to listen to you uh, in fact like some of the some of the field messages that go back uh to regimental headquarters are basically like i want this in writing because this is like you know you're basically trying to you know put a death sentence on my battalion right and so they say, okay, yeah, Roger, we'll go do that. So um, in the last attacks, uh, they're held up around the uh, the Bois de Vie, which is just a, it's just a hilltop um, with some shattered sort of woods around it um, with a whole massive trench system that I got to go into a couple of weeks ago, which was super cool. That still exists. Um, yeah. Very large trench system. Isn't it crazy? Like, oh, we, we can get to that in a minute, but like... <laughs> So, um, and what they do is really interesting, you know, under strength, they could have just been like, you know, screw this guy. We're like, we're staying in our foxholes and not moving. Um, but they do, they continuously are making efforts to move forward. So they hit the Bois de Vie, um, one battalion takes over the front line and yeah, the orders were, don't worry about your flanks. And so that battalion commander goes to one of the other battalion commanders. He's like, Hey man, we'll help. Um, and so 
what they end up doing is I think it was um first battalion. So third third battalion was the assault element. And then they take the first battalion, take two companies and put them on the flanks. Basically just to they're the hey, make sure that we're connected to somebody. Make sure we don't advance ahead of everybody else. So you have this this communication already happening. I mean, this is organic. These are people who know what they're doing. They're really good at this by now. There's a few, um, they try to, you know, they request artillery on the hilltop. It's like 15 to 18 rounds. And like, oh my God, like this is nothing. Like they try to hit it with trench mortars, um, but they're realizing there's just not, it's not going anywhere and they're taking too many losses. So uh, November 10th, the, the last attack of the day, uh, Company K basically finds this ravine in between these two hilltops. Um, and they, they infiltrate into the ravine. Again, it's like 22 dudes. That's about it. Wow. Infiltrate into the ravine, go up the slope, and the platoon leader basically, well, company commander, squad leader. <laughs> yeah, all of these things. Yeah, he's, he's an LT, and he's just like, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to basically do walking fire. So, like, just shoot. Like, I don't care if you see something where it looks like someone could be hiding, shoot it. Wow. It's that concept of walking fire. <clears throat> and so they move up and, yeah, they get into this the whole trench system and they start cleaning it out. Um, and the rest of the battalion is able to come in, all 150, 200 of them, and, like, slowly begin clearing out, like, this massive, intricate, like, three or four lines of, of entrenchments that are holding something like 50 or 60 Germans with multiple machine guns so um and it's it, it's really it's pretty brutal fighting there's um there's a lieutenant lieutenant pert uh in company i i think who had literally he and a sergeant had just hopped into a trench and like bayoneted and shot the the german machine gunners and like put the in the frontline trench and were able to take this area he's behind a tree and he's like writing a note to his battalion commander to give him location of other machine guns. Like, here's where I'm taking fire from, you know, can we get artillery? And as he's writing it, he gets shot through the head. Man, wow. Um, so it's, it's really savage. This is where um, Moses Neptune, who was one of the uh, Passamaquoddy native Americans right. uh, in the regiment. Um, he was actually the, the chief's son um, and he's killed here. Um, and another one of the Passamaquoddy men is uh, shot through the legs while carrying another soldier off the battlefield. So it's nasty. It is nasty close-in fighting. Um, gets in hand-to-hand. But they do it. The, and the amazing thing is they break this line. And they are the only, really the only effective force of the 26th Division <clears throat> left on November 10th. Like, they actually have to extend their line on the night of November 10th to put all three battalions online for the first time in the war to go cover down into the 51st brigade sector, because like the 101st and 102nd pretty much don't exist anymore. They're, they're just, there's not much left of them. So, and then of course, you know, the morning comes the famous order of, you know, you're going to still keep attacking on November 11th. And it comes in like, You know, even the even the new regimental commander, um, Colonel Dowell, Cassius Dowell, he um, he gets the order and he's like, it was in a testimony um, before Congress after the war, because Congress was like, why were these attacks made? Um, and he goes, I hope that my military discipline will never be tested again like this, um, because it was, you know, orders came in at 930. Um 
Well, the orders came in in, in the morning, like uh, during the night, everyone's going to attack. Orders came in at 9.30 saying, nope, um, the infantry will not advance, just the artillery will fire until 11 o'clock. And then like 10 or so, another order comes in that says, order the infantry to advance and halt at 11, holding all ground gained. Man, yeah. That's... And that's where and that's where you get the their last casualty is uh, Corporal Leon LeBonville from... From Colonel Hume's old company from Holton, Maine, um, who is this guy who's been in the like he was a pre-war guardsman, made it through the entire war, killed in that last just coming out of the woods uh, in that last push. Mm. And they were able to just kind of like straighten out a little bit of a line. Um, but yeah, that's uh, by by the time the armistice, you know, by by 11, um, there was zero celebration. These guys were just completely in. They'd been on the front lines um pretty like you know pretty much since they arrived in the the heights of the moose uh since the end of october so you got two weeks of just like utter crap um right so yeah there were pretty much everyone just like collapses to sleep or like tries to find something to eat and, but no no celebration yeah yeah one of the lines in in the book is um you know the everything goes quiet and and i guess a doughboy is like well i guess i'll go find some grub like, right right yeah exactly <laughs> but i you know na- nature uh, you know nature calls like you know in- intake at, at that point you know yeah um, i mean what else are you gonna do yeah yeah wow so um real quick like a little bit off topic but like so you you were there like um j- just a few weeks ago so um you were in the very ground that the 103rd was fighting like the the um Bois de Ville is, is yeah it yeah yeah the Bois de Ville. Um, yeah it was super awesome. Uh, we're able to link up with a friend who's a gendarme to ensure that like you know we're not wandering into some farmer's field or you know get, get shot by French hunters. Yeah, which is an occupational hazard. They, you know, there's lots of hunting in that area. Um, yeah, it, no, it was um, it was a hunch. I was like, I've never been here, but I think there should be something here. And so we took we took um, Lieutenant Blackman's flanking route down to the ravine, um, which was which is recent decently clear. And then at just one point, I'm just like, uh, all right, let's just go up the hill. And so we were just walking up the hill, and I'm like, uh, I don't know, I don't see anything. Like, is this just gonna be a complete dead end? Did I drag my friends here out of like, you know, we we could go see cool stuff that we know exists, and instead we're just wandering around some French woods. And then we hit the barbed wire, and I'm like, oh barbed wire wow like an actual post there with a barbed wire i'm like ah so i'm like freaking out about that meanwhile other people are going up the top of the hill and i hear holy like you know (laughs) some joyful swearing um and i get up there and like my mind just like blows because it's like you know sometimes when you look at a world war one trench or a trench anywhere and you're like this could be a trench line or this could be like irrigation or it could have just rained a lot you know Right. Of a stream or something. Right. This was one of those like, oh my God, it's like, it's a full three, sit like three line trench system with fire trenches and communication, tre- like, like everything all there um, that is visible. And you're like, what? Oh my God. Like, this is it. So, yeah, we walked around and started finding like all the great stuff that we always look for on battlefields <laughs> like rusty gold as my friend calls it <laughs> yep tons of like shell fragments and some uh some show shot rounds so or uh cartridges some uh 
uh, elements, you know, like bully beef tins and yeah. So it just like, not only is this the spot, but like there, here's actual evidence of like them being U S soldiers being here. Um, so that was, that was absolutely the coolest. So like just walking all the lines and really like it's, it's a huge area. And it was then that I suddenly realized I was like, how the hell did like about a hundred, 150 dudes take this? I'm right. like, I'm like malnourished, exhausted guys at the edge of their limits took this. And like my mind just like broke. I'm like, I can't even fathom that. Like if someone had given me that mission, I'd be like, you're out of your mind. I'm not doing this. Like this is an unlawful order. Yeah. Or, or we can do it in like three days, but I need right. like, hot chow and a, a couple of days of sleep. Like, <laughs> yep. I'm going to need basically as much artillery that you uh, can imagine um, <laughs> right now. Yeah. Yeah. Everything you launched on September 26th. I need yeah. all of that. Yeah. I need all of that. Yeah. <laughs> so I need the million dollar barrage. Um, yeah, no, it was utterly, utterly wild. And it brought a whole new respect for me. It brought a whole new respect to those individuals who were able to, to accomplish that. Um, especially knowing as many of them did at that point that the war was really about to end, um, to, to, to just keep going, um, was utterly, utterly unreal. And it, it also helped me like understand, you know, there are only, they're only at the the 26th division is only in the on the moose sector um you know october like mid october um mm-hmm. they're not there for very long but i think the time there left a really indelible mark um just as just as the second marne did um but it, it's a mark that less people were willing to write about um because i think it really was was so horrific that they were just like i don't I don't want to think about this. Like, I don't want to remember it. I don't want to think about it. Right. So it was, uh, it was fascinating to see that whole perspective and see that the train is awful. The train is so bad. We definitely almost totally tore the bottom off the car <laughs> taking one road <laughs> that we probably shouldn't have taken. Um, but it, you know, GPS said it was the most direct route. You know, but, I know. Uh, yeah, uh, I know. I, I was, I, I don't know if you've been to the, um, it's on the other side, the the Joseph Gunter um, Memorial. It's up on the hill point. Uh, it's like the furthest penetration by the AEF, the mm. 29th Division. It's not where, where Gunter died. Yeah. Henry Gunter, I'm sorry. Um, it's not where he died, but the memorial to him is there. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's this big hill, and, and I was there um, in just a, a – an SUV and and it's like, yeah, just take this hill. Just, right. just, just turn right and go here. down. But but the slope was yeah. like this. And I was like, man, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this really slow. And if something goes wrong, it's gonna be hours before right. sees the right. smoke, you know, on the hill. Right. So, yeah, it's that ground is is something, but um oh it's fascinating. I'm so glad you 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 guys got really into it and got to see the the marks that are left there. Um that out there the the war is still like a big thing like it's it's a palpable presence i maybe that's just me going into it already thinking that but i i like oh no it's it's, yeah it's literally we we started out in the um in homa which is one of the it's one of the destroyed villages that hasn't been rebuilt we actually get to meet the mayor of of homa because all these destroyed villages still have a mayor amazing um so he wanted to come out and you know see what these crazy americans are doing but yeah i mean the war is 
so very visible. Um, and I don't know, I left Verdun just feeling like, just feeling in a way that I don't think I really had felt on any other battlefield in World War One. Where, because sometimes it's like, I don't, you know, was it's hard to imagine the fighting here. You know, I, I felt a lot of it around Bellow because just of so much of the research uh, into the soldiers and everything, and you can kind of visualize things. But there you're like, you can see it, man. It is, it is, um, it is just a, a stunning place. Um, and then when, and when, and then when you drive up to like the cemetery, you know, look at like 16, what 16,000 graves look like. Right. Um, in 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 a, a landscape that's still just pockmarked with shell holes it's i i think everyone needs to go to verdun um if you go to france you should go to verdun um it will leave you a changed person um and you're probably not going to be a very like war is cool person hopefully if you leave yeah. feeling like war is cool after seeing verdun maybe talk to a therapist <laughs> yeah yeah definitely the 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 ossuary is very very sobering the 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 15,000 graves in front. And then when you walk around back of the actual building itself, mm. you can see the bones collected from the battlefield. It's all, it's all very sobering, but the Mirzar gone too is I always try to describe it as a garden of peace, very mm. expensively purchased. It's, it's one of yeah. the most stunning places. Um, the level of care that goes into it and, and Bruce Malone and Charlie Diaz, like you guys oh, are yeah. knocking it out. Um, but it's, you know, you think of like, man, there's a lot of boys under there and all over the, the period of, of 47 days. Yeah. Yeah. It was really moving to when we went from, you know, we, we, we went and stopped by the, I think it was the day after, or maybe it was that day. I can't, anyway, a couple of days after we went, we did go to the, the uh, Muzargan Cemetery. And then I got to go find the soldiers who died taking the Bois de Vie. Um, and go like visit their graves, which also is a whole level of a whole level, extra level of meaning. You know, the ones who, you know, whose uh, remains were not repatriated by their families. Mm -hmm. um, it just, it's, um, yeah, that whole region is, I don't know, there's just something very, you feel heavy when you're there. It's not a light, happy feeling. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear this because I, I thought I was like the only one. <laughs> no, I was just like, yeah, every time I go, I'm like, man, I'm just such a downer here, but it, it just feels somber. Um, and I don't know if it's like the feeling of just a lot of death, um, not just from the Americans, but also, I mean, obviously the, the Verdun is just a, a, a French sacred space um, precisely because of the sacrifices that were made there. The uh, but yeah, that whole region just left me feeling very thoughtful afterwards. Um, and I think I'm still trying to figure out, like, to put into words, like, how do I feel about this? Like, what does it make me feel? And that's kind of the I mean, that's the purpose of going to a lot of these battlefields, right? Is to, yes, you want to like you can look at lessons learned, you can look at terrain to see how that affected operations, um, you can look at tactics, you can look at individual stories, but I think when you start to like really walk through a lot of these areas, you get like really just hit with like the power of meaning. Like what, what does this mean? Like what was this for? Which is really interesting. I went to the, um, I went to the uh, world war one monument in DC the other day. And on the back of it, the back of it's my favorite part. Cause there's this quote 
that's basically um i'm trying to remember the exact words but it's like you know we we went and did our part it is up to you to provide us meaning like you determine what did our deaths mean like what did our service mean what did our sacrifice mean i was like oh yeah that hits like that's yeah that's that's very profound and it sort of speaks to like what we're like what do we do as historians is do we are we providing that meaning or are we just getting lost in like the you know the the little like the i don't want to sound demeaning um or patronizing but like you you get some people can get so worked up in like the tactics or the equipment or the weapons that they sometimes it just feels like you can't see the meaning aspect of it like what what did this war mean for america what did this war mean for these communities what did this war mean for these the survivors of it who had to come home and then live with these memories for the rest of their life and then also watch not only that but like something that should probably feel pretty familiar to lots of combat veterans today. Hey, you went and did this thing and you sacrificed a lot. And then there was an even bigger war. Like, and then the war happened again. Like, yeah. So, so what was it for? And I think there's a, there, there's a lot to be said of looking at the world war one generation from the global war on terror, like our generation of like, how do we heal? Um, and I think talking about World War One is is a really good way to to actually help that um, to show, hey, you're not alone. We are not like we are not the only generation that can't look back at a war and be like, yeah, we did it, awesome, right. like mission accomplished. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Especially when Bosch um, says, you know, you you don't have peace. You you've got an you've got a twenty year armistice here. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That that back of the um, the quote on the back of the DC memorial um, that makes me think of uh, in Flanders Fields the the poem yeah. to you we throw the torch like, exactly yeah exactly exactly that that same line of thought um, amazing um, Jonathan where can people find your book because while you can buy it on Amazon um, you can also get it for free and I I, I don't think you'll mind my saying that. Not at all. I want people to do that because, um, yes, while you can buy it for $20 on Amazon, um, that is by virtue of the fun fact that government publications have no copyright. And so print for fee services like Amazon, Barnes and Noble, a couple others basically can just take the entire and can and do take the entire catalog of basically the government printing office and, and sell it. Um, so don't do that. Uh, go to Army University Press. Um, they are the publisher. Uh, you can go into the book section, look at World War One. Um, I'm last time I checked, I was right next to Infantry in Battle by um by Marshall, um, which I feel like I was like, I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be next to George C. Marshall. <laughs> well, if if I can, um, yeah, yes, yes, you do, because I wanted to say, uh, um, so your book while well, while I was reading it, um I said, how, how am I going to describe this book to him? So b- bear me out. So my, for the last couple of years, my, my wife has made a uh, British style Christmas cake, you know, like mm-hmm. it's kind of like a fruit cake, but it's soaked in brandy. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. Um, and I was like, okay, so Jonathan's book is like a Christmas cake. Like it's dense, you know, I don't know if it's soaked in brandy. Um, Some of it was soaked in gin, but yeah. 
just makes it even better. But it is, it is a like, and I say that because it's it's dense, it's rich, but it's it's so incredibly informative. And um, as far as a book, like I I read it cover to cover, and I and I um, really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed getting getting down and learning about these communities, which are just up the road from me that that even I know know very little about. So um, you you very much deserve to be next to Marshall. Nice job. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. That uh, uh, that means the world. Um, I like I said, I didn't. Uh, I never meant to set out to write this. Um, it was after a while you only get like you can only collect so many stories before you're like, well, these are not my stories. I need to share these like, and after a while it just became like this imperative thing of like, I need to share these stories. There are so many amazing individuals, communities, you know, all these different things. Um, and so it worked really well with the um, army university press, um, because they were looking at, you know, showing from the professional side, like, how do you, how do you incorporate the reserve component into large scale combat operations? How do you train? How do you fight? What are the lessons learned from that fighting? How do you recover from these types of losses? Um, so I was able to blend, um, my goal was to blend the, the personal side, the stories the, that people can connect with, with that professional learning aspect of here's how the AEF was a learning organization. However, here's how it learned to fight um, successfully or not. Uh, as the case may be. Um, and here's sort of the things that we can take away from it. And here's how it's impacted the way that the the army has developed today. So um, it was really just a, m me going, I, I need to tell these stories, um, especially when one specific, one specific dude wouldn't leave me alone, um, even though he's obviously long dead. Um, but so the com last company I commanded was the 251st Engineer Company, which was Company D, 103rd Infantry from Norway, Maine. Really? Okay. So the guy who had been the company commander, um, basically, I had historical like run-ins with him like from 2016 until the book was published. Like real, just like weird, bizarre, almost like borderline creepy, like... Here's this photo that I helped identify. Oh, that's him. He had the very unfortunate name of Guy Sweat. Wow. Yes. All right. Very memorable. Um, <laughs> I see this photo of him. And then um, there's this other thing. Oh, his, his name was on the wall in the Shemenda Dom, like in a, a quarry in the Shemenda Dom. Um, I got a bunch of letters donated from him. And then the big one, the one that was just basically like the, hey, tell my story was, um, the state historian called me and was like, hey, um, one of my guys who does estate sales, um, he found this book that was sitting basically on a trash heap of things to get thrown away. And he opened it up and leafed through it. And it's a diary of a World War One soldier. Oh, my God. And his name was Guy Sweat. Would you be oh. interested? I'm like, oh, my God. Like, are you kidding me? It was his full like he kept full every day. Um, all of his notes. Um, so it was thing, it was things like that. And I got, I got really lucky because national archives is obviously amazing and wonderful. Um, pro tip for all of you who are doing research on world war one units in record group One Eleven, Yes. You have all the divisional files and subordinate units will be in there. The other place to look is records of mobile. I think it's, 
I think it's called Records of Mobile Army Units. I think Mobile that's what it's called. Army. Okay. There is an obscene amount of stuff on units in there. Because I, I think I had like four boxes on the 103rd inside the 26th Division. There were 22 boxes in this other records group. Whoa. Wow. It was insane. And, I, and and that's where like field messages, like all this little, like the the gold, the, the gold that researchers are looking at. So um, if you're doing research, go to NARA, look at look at that. The research will be very helpful if you sort of sort of stutter and be like, hey, here's what I think it's called. Or you can look it up um, somewhere. I've got the record group number written down, but sure. um, that was amazing. And then also I just lucked out by families when they heard about that there was someone who was researching this. I mean, I had company commanders' um, logbooks. I had battalion commanders' logbooks. I had diaries. I had all the letters of a battalion commander. Um, yeah, it it uh, it adds up after a while. So I, I had some really good source material. Oh, fantastic, fantastic! Now, final final question, and and I'll let you go. Um, future projects going to the Civil War interest or work on guys sweat. <laughs> in World War I, like, oh, that's a great question. Um, after I finished this in, well, so let's see, I finished this in in 2020. Um, you know, great year. I literally, when I was at NARA in March of 2020, like I was closing out my last day, and they're like, "Oh, you had really good timing. We're shutting down, and we don't know when we're opening back up because COVID." <laughs> yeah. So it was literally nick of time. <clears throat> so it came out. Um, an ebook and then um and then uh uh printed book form in later in 2021 um and I, after the whole process I was like I am never writing a book again never again am I editing formatting answering questions about maps like all these little things like I'm never doing this again and now I'm like I should write a book <laughs> So I don't, I mean, the, the, the short answer is I don't know. Um, sure. I would love to look at the 103rd in World War II because uh, they were in the oh. Pacific with the 43rd okay. Infantry Division. So they've got some crazy stuff there. Um, or possibly also looking um, looking into the Civil War or also the American Revolution. Um, so, you know, could literally be anywhere. Um, so all my side projects right now are mainly just um, articles and, and things like that. So we will see what the future holds. Oh, fantastic. Jonathan, thank you um, again so much for taking time out of your uh, Saturday afternoon to uh, to come on and, and talk about your book. And um, man, any other World War One related topics? Uh, the, the door is always open. So really, thank you. Um, greatly appreciate it. And what, what a great discussion. And good to talk about um, uh, our people here, the, the New Englanders. Um, That's right. So... Yeah, right. no, thank you so much. This was uh this is a blast. I loved it.